support comes from Pier 1 Theater, Homer's Community Theater supporting community voices. Schedules and information on Pier 1 Productions at 226-2287 and pier1theater.org. Hi, this is Jay Barrett with a pre-recorded coffee table. A few weeks ago, essayist Emily Springer and I interviewed two people about Homer's Peace Tree, which sits in the Homer Public Library. We spoke with librarian Kevin Coe and a former Homer resident about how the idea of the Peace Tree was formed in the wake of World War II. Steve Yoshida, who lives in Hawaii now, begins with his personal connection to Hiroshima, where the first nuclear bomb was dropped, and where the peace tree's seeds are from. It's pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any phone calls. My parents were immigrants from Hiroshima, uh, with the dream, of course, of all immigrants to, uh, uh, to make their fortune and go back to their home country and, and use the money to start a business and be prosperous. Then Pearl Harbor happened, and uh, my family was interned, and I was born in an internment camp. I didn't have any memory of that. I was well cared for, and uh, uh, so I didn't realize, you know, what had occurred until later on uh, to see my parents struggling and, and suffering because they lost everything when they came out, and, um, and their dream of going back to Hiroshima was dashed. Um, even after the war, they thought, let's go back to Japan. You know, we, we don't want to stay in a country that, uh, that has treated us like this. Um, and they discovered that they had no place to go back to. You know, Hiroshima had been completely destroyed and, and my relatives there had all died in, in the bomb. So, um, as I said, my parents struggled, but they gave me a good education and I really didn't suffer uh, from all of the tragedy. Uh, but I always had in the back of my mind, this really should never happen again. Uh, uh, not to blame any country, you know, that you can uh, talk about oh, who did what, uh, but to just look at what happened and the weapon and how that affected people's lives and how in the future uh, it could affect people's lives on the planet. And so I, I just thought there's something I could do, I'd like to do it. And that was uh, the occasion never came up until I joined Rotary. And uh, they had a model of, um, of service above self and, uh, and um, world peace. And I saw it sounds good to me, you know. So through Rotary, um, I should back up when I talked to you uh, before about uh, coming to Homer. Um, I got a job and it took me to Homer and I just fell in love with Homer. I just had, had to live there. Even though I had a scientific background, uh, I just decided this is the place to raise my kids. And so- Where, where did you move to Homer from? Uh, well, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, and I got a job with NOAA, and a ship brought me here to Homer. Uh, so I was kind of a wanderer just before I came to Homer, I traveled the world, and, uh, and I saw uh, all these different places, and Homer was 
fit me just fine. So I, I, I came to Homer. And the thought was too that Alaska is um, going to be free of, of the danger of nuclear weapons. And that was back in the 60s, 70s when people were, uh, when the kids at school were going under their desks to practice when a bomb fell and how to, how to survive. So I figured, well, you know, if I came to Alaska, raised my family there, at least we'd be free from this nuclear um, threat. And then, and then Rotary took me to uh, Russia. I, I was a, a district governor of a region that included uh, uh, Siberia and the Far East and, uh, and discovered that um, Alaska is a, is a main target because we have so many ro uh, rockets here aimed at the closest uh, uh, point to Russia, they did the same. And this was no safe haven. You know, we'd be the first to get hit if there was an exchange. Uh, so I you know, discovered there's no place to hide. And now with the proliferation and uh, the megatonnage of bombs, not only does it affect targets, but it affects the whole world. You know, there's this effect on the atmosphere and uh, and any kind of a confrontation, uh, exchange of bombs is going to be a disaster for the, the planet. And I made some of my best friends in, in Russia, and we talked about this topic. And, and they looked at me and said, you know, Russia, we, we were... Uh, traders and we um, established a lot of settlements in Russia and, and a lot of the people in Russia are our people just like us. In fact, they probably carry the DNA from the time that we were there. And now we're separated, but we still have the same mentality. You know, we are uh, frontiers people and we don't like central governments and we try to do the best we can for ourselves. But what is this thing now with these nuclear weapons? Why, why do we have to have such terror um, when we're just ordinary people and we like you, you like us, why do we need it? You know, so it, it dawned on me, it impressed me even more. Uh, number one, the destruction of these weapons and number two, the need for these weapons. Why, why do we have to have these weapons to settle disputes with people who are just like us. You know, that was another person's discovery. So I um, tried to think of ways that we could uh, make these connections and maybe spread the idea of education about number one, the destructive, destructive power of these weapons and number two, um, the total unnecessary need for these things. I mean, we have been told uh, that it's uh, uh, for a policy that will keep us safe and in peace, and it's really just the opposite. So we had some peace conferences uh, in Rotary, and one in Honolulu I chaired, and it took me to Hiroshima. Uh, the, the president was a Japanese president uh, who's uh, who's uh, theme was peace to serve us. Uh, and so he had peace conference forums in, in Berlin, Honolulu, and Hiroshima. So you can see what he was thinking about, you know, where uh, these tragedies have happened and where countries were the worst of enemies, 
now we're at peace with each other. And let's continue that with all other countries in the world. So that was the theme of these peace conferences. Took me to Hiroshima. And I, and I was impressed with Hiroshima. It's, it's a peace-oriented uh, city, as you would expect. But in a, in a really ingenious way, in that uh, many of the survivors have grouped together and the mayor is... Uh, is for global peace. He, there's a number of cities that are part of this association of peace headed in, in Hiroshima. And I thought, well, how can we bring this home? You know, how do we do this uh, with, uh, with Homer, Alaska? That's where I live and what can I do? And so they gave me some seeds and I brought it back and I, I grew, grew them and, and started understanding what this was about. And they told me the story that after the bomb, uh, everyone had predicted that uh, there'd be no, nothing uh, coming, uh, no life would come back uh, for decades, most likely. And the victims of the bomb, they would eventually die in short order from radiation. But in a few months, uh, plants started to come back, trees started to grow. Um, and uh, the people seeing this thought, well, if trees can grow after this uh, event, maybe there's hope for us. Maybe we're not doomed because of uh, the A-bombs. And it gave them a spirit of hope and survival. And they started working to bring back their city, which they did miraculously. And these trees stood for that. And so when they got to thinking about global peace, they thought these trees could be a symbol of the hope uh, and survivability of the species uh, and the um, horror of nuclear weapons. Uh, and I thought that was a great idea. There was an organization doing this, and I thought, well, maybe the Rotary Clubs can do it. So we started a... a, a, a coalition of clubs in Japan and in the US and call it Heiwa, which means peace in, in Japanese. And our mission is to distribute these seeds to water clubs all over the world. And that's how it came to Homer. I, I was going to Russia distributing seeds and uh, uh, I came to Homer and um, we had one a group that was uh, planting trees in Savannah and they shared some plants. And then I saw Kevin's exhibit in the library and he had these books and he had these pictures. And uh, I understood that he, he knew exactly uh, the approach to understanding the history and maybe its relevance to Homer. And so I immediately asked, who did this? And they pointed me to Kevin and I met him and I said, I've got these seeds and maybe it could be added to the educational program and we can talk about it more. And in that way, you know, spread the information to our, uh, to, to our community. So Kevin? Yeah. Well, I think for me, it all starts in, uh, in third grade with Miss Vixie in English class. And she had us read a book called Sadako and the Thousand Paper Cranes. And uh, it made a really deep impression on me as a kid. Um, in the book, it's about a survivor, a little girl, just like any of us um, that had lived through it and, uh, and got 
you know, got sick and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the custom is that if you can fold a thousand paper cranes, uh, your wish will be granted. And so she tried to fold a thousand paper cranes to heal herself. Um, and so, you know, all throughout my life, that's always been sort of my thing is, uh, or one of, you know, one of the things I've always thought about has been these cranes. And when we had a chance at the library, it was Armistice Day, um, wanted to put together a display for that. And so uh, just starting with that single book and a stack of origami paper, um, the goal was just to teach as many people how to fold paper cranes at the library. Um, and, you know, and so we just, you know, it went back into our stacks and, and tried to find as much information about, um, about, about, about the war, but also about healing. Um, just in a way to make it real, uh, real for people and, and uh, something that we could all do, work on together, you know, really through art. Must have resonated with some people because that's how we met Steve. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, birds of a feather. But yeah, you know, in a way it's, you know, I didn't want to have to address the idea of, of, uh, of nuclear war through, you know, oh God, you know, war is horrible and nuclear war is horrible. I, I wanted to try to find solutions, which is let's, let's, Let's learn how to let's learn how to heal each other and heal ourselves in the process. I'm actually Filipino. Uh, since World War II, our family, you know, has been on the move for quite a while. But at a certain point, our family actually, you know, my father was able to get a job in, in Japan. And so I actually spent a little bit of time there. And so I spent some time with my grandfather, who had suffered greatly during the war in the Philippines. We went on a tour of Japan and went to Hiroshima and visited some of the same, you know, visited uh there's a church there that I can't remember the actual name of the museum there, but as a middle schooler, <laughs> it left a really deep impression being in Hiroshima. I'm just thankful that that we can keep on spreading the message of peace through human stories. And, you know, I, I really agree with Kevin. Uh, this, this topic is a hard topic. And when you deal with a hard topic, it's easy to just space out and not pay attention to it, uh, no matter how important it is. So um, part of the program, I thought necessary to bring an attitude of peace is for cultural exchange, is for people to understand that ours is not the you know, only culture or the best culture. There are many others and it's very, very interesting. So uh, Noko and I, my wife Noko and I, uh, were involved in creating sister cities uh, for uh, Homer. And we started a sister city in Japan uh, with the same idea, you know, our worst enemies now are our best friends. And if you come with us and exchange your kids, you'll see what a great country it is and how much uh, uh, they have uh, to offer in culture. And why did we ever have a war with people like as so nice as this? And the other place I thought important was, uh, was of course, Russia. And uh, we had an Alaska airline flight from Anchorage to um, Kamchatka at one time to Yelizaveta, and we formed a sister club, a sister city with the city of Yelizaveta. Um, I don't know if you remember Martha Madsen, but uh, in the 70s, she was a curator at the um, uh, Pratt Museum. She found a, a, a land and a, a man that she loved, 
she married and now lives there and has lived there for over 50 years. And she was sort of the person who um, helped us put this together. So we had exchanges and we had um, a lot of wonderful memories of that time together. And since then it's kind of faded away. But um, that was something our community could do and learn firsthand by traveling, having fun, making friends, and, and in that way, under, uh, understanding that there's no reason to be at odds with each other, and especially not to be able to resolve any disputes without these horrible weapons. So anyway, that's sort of the subliminal message, but the easiest way we felt to get uh, attitude of our community uh, was to expose them to the culture and see that there was really nothing to fear. And it's silly for us to listen to a lot of uh, media and the government sometimes in, in creating this atmosphere of free uh, fear and the need to protect ourselves. I mean, in that extreme way, sure, to some degree, we have to have these institutions, but not, not, not to have these weapons of mass destruction. So I'm hoping that maybe from this conversation and Kevin's uh, creative uh, uh, exhibits and discussions, more can come of this in a fun way. You know, we can talk about uh, what a wonderful place. And I, and I hope, and I would be, uh, I would really love to keep my connection with Homer uh, I would be open to maybe having a group go to Hiroshima or having uh, a youth group, especially, uh, or, to, or to Russia when COVID's died down, of course, so maybe a couple of years or more. Um, but now we could start talking about it. We can do the education process to get people interested. And maybe in a couple of years, we'll uh, organize a group to go and have people come here. We used to do that. And uh, I'm sorry that... Uh, that can't continue. It, it, it wouldn't require uh, uh, city funds to do. It would be a private thing as we did before. Uh, and it's, uh, it would be a trip of a lifetime. And, and many of the uh, young people who have gone on these trips can attest to that, who live at home or now. So I'm hoping that maybe through your uh, allowing us to talk about it, such things can be revived again. Thanks for planting that seed. Yeah, <laughs> literally. <laughs> the one thing I wanted to try to mention, and I don't want to bring COVID up too much because I know everyone's sick of talking about it, but like Kevin, like you said, let's try and find healthy solution and processes through art rather than conflict. You know, that is something that I think I would like to hear happening through schools with the kids and COVID and all the conflict all over this country and all of the po politics and drama and try and find some ways to talk about it in, in other ways. Um, you know, I know that COVID and it, we don't need to compare these two topics, but it's so, there's so much conflict with COVID in so many places in this country right now. And I think having conversations like this through art and vulnerability and, you know, cranes for healing and that kind of stuff can could potentially be really helpful too.
I think of the tree, the tree is a survivor, right? The tree survived the worst that humanity could throw at it. And, uh, you know, it's just a, it's just a little thing that we nurture, uh, we nurture along and it, it grows slow and, uh, and it's, you know, it's in it, but, you know, I think that's, that's the message. I think that, uh, the tree says to me, um, and that I hope to share, it's just, you know, it's like, we can, we can survive this if we can just nurture each other just a little bit, just takes a cup, a little bit of water. <laughs> and, you know, all of us have survived in some way, you know, we're all, all of us here are here because of the sacrifices of our, of our direct ancestors. And we need to find places where we can plant these seeds and grow something better. I'm just so happy that, you know, the tree is big enough that we can put it out there and people can come and just see it. We've placed it right on the compass rows of, of our map table just to help us guide us a little bit. <laughs> and so now all of our book displays kind of you know, sort of radiate around that, whether it's right now, I think the the display that we have out there is creativity. One before that was was about furry friends. We've had much, you know, much more serious displays than that in the past, but you know, I think it helps anchor us having having that there. And if I could uh, talk a little bit about what uh, seeds or trees that uh, Kevin is growing, they're ginkgo trees. And it has tremendous uh, symbolism because the ginkgo tree survived the last extinction. It's been around that long, hundreds of millions of years ago, and they found fossil leaves of that tree before the last extinction. And so here's a tree that survived, Hiroshima survived the last extinction, and it's still going strong. So I think that has a wonderful um, symbolism of what we should be aspiring for. You know, maybe the human species uh, should imitate these trees and, and how they managed to survive. And like uh, Kevin said, they did it slowly and steadily. Every day they nurture and they grow a little bit longer, uh, bigger and stronger. And before long, they've lived centuries and thousands and millions of years. So maybe that's a good way to think about our species. Shouldn't we look at the ginkgo tree and try to emulate what it's what led to its survival? You know? So I, I think that that story too would be inspiring for people in our community. How big is the tree right now? Um, when we first, when we, they were, uh, so when we closed down during COVID, when the library closed down during COVID a year and a half ago, uh, I was originally, you know, we had sort of turned, uh, turned some of our office space into a tiny little nursery. <laughs> and uh, so we had to bring, we had to bring some of those, we had to bring those home. So when we first came in, it was probably only had maybe uh, two or three node nodes of plants, and it was probably only about yay tall. And when we came into the library for the first time, it's like, okay, we're just going to put it in a giant pot and, and see how it does. And in the light of the library, it's so, it's such a, you know, it's an open and sunny space. It's, it's, it's probably about a foot tall right now. Um, you know, it's it got more nodes than I can count and it's just, it's going, yeah. When did you receive it? It's about two years ago, right, Steve, that we met? Yeah. Uh, oh, very recently. 
about two years ago. Yeah, it just really just started out as just a tiny seedling, you know, just two leaves. <laughs> and I was wondering about the timing uh, because, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, Steve, I don't know when you left Homer and Kevin, I don't know when you arrived. I, I guess I sort of assumed it happened while uh, both of you lived here at the same time. But uh, uh, Steve, did you just move to Hawaii two years ago or did you come back to bring three? I moved to Hawaii 11 years ago, but we still had property there. I had a house and we had to sell. So every day, every year we came back for two, three months. And it was, this year is the first time we haven't spent summer in Homer. But my heart's still there. So I, I continue to look for connections. And you know, I have many friends there. And Homer has just been so wonderful in my family. It was a dream come true. You know, I, I, I could see that a great place to raise a family and it, it was the ultimate so i am indebted to homer and all it's done for us uh, and so i'd like to move forward with um enriching the lives of homer people and, and i think uh, uh locally you know we were we worked uh, for the center of coastal studies and the homer community foundation uh, but i think internationally also because Homer to me is a, a ecosystem that can teach the world about how fragile um, uh, nature is. And Homer with glaciers and with uh, uh, all the sea life is a great school to teach people that. It has all the ingredients for teaching people about peace, how, why it's so necessary to preserve such a fabulous place. And it involves not just the local uh, efforts, but global efforts, because what's happening globally will affect us in time. Kevin, how long have you been here? Uh, I got here in, in 2003, uh, just after college. And I think I probably had a really, uh, you know, hearing Steve talk about how his experience coming on in on his NOAA ship and thinking this is a great place to have a family. For me, I uh, uh, call it born again on Baycrest Hill. You know, we just, me and some buddies, uh, you know, came across Baycrest Hill, stopped up there on our motorcycles. And then, you know, that's one of the first things I thought, man, this would be a great place to raise a family. At the time, I had no idea what Homer was actually like. I thought the whole, you know, we just saw the spit out there. So I thought that was the whole town and, <laughs> you know, but, you know, we, camped out on seaside farms with Mossy. It was, uh, you know, uh, from a city kid that had grown up in Seoul and Tokyo and New York and Hong Kong uh, to be able to see the life cycle of a raspberry plant was totally mind blowing. <laughs> so I haven't left yet. You're listening to a pre-recorded coffee table about Homer's peace tree. Our guests are Steve Yoshida and Kevin Coe. We'll be back in just a few minutes. KBBI is here to help you stay connected and informed. If you are looking for local information and resources on the coronavirus situation, then KBBI has you covered. Tune in to the COVID Brief Thursday mornings at 9 a.m. to hear local updates from representatives from the South Peninsula Hospital, the City of Homer, and the Alaska Department of Public Health. Call in with your questions during the show at 
back now to The Coffee Table. Co-host Emily Springer and I are talking with Steve Yoshida and Kevin Ko about Rotary International, Sister Cities, A Thousand Cranes, and The Peace Tree. It's pre-recorded, so we're not taking any phone calls. Can we talk a little bit about Palmer's resolution to be a nuclear-free zone? I don't know what the city has now, but there used to be a sign right in front of uh, uh, City Hall that uh, declared Homer nuclear-free zone. And I inquired about that, and uh, there are a number of nuclear-free zone cities uh, in the United States. And the principle is that um, they are opposed to any nuclear activity in this area, uh, be it nuclear ships coming in, you know, or, or any kind of nuclear uh, power stations or uh, anything to do with nuclear, they want Homer to be free of it. You know, there are other places they can go if, if it's uh, essential, but they don't have to come to Homer. And I think that was a very strong statement early on, and I have a feeling that it's a continuing feeling of the community, but it hasn't been kept alive, you know. But it's so a resolution is passed, and so it's there and until it's uh, canceled or dismissed. It's a part of a, a Homer official stand uh, on this issue. Uh, so I think it's important that um, Homer people did do something even before I got to Homer about this issue, thinking about it, and they didn't want to see us go down a road that involved uh, nuclear weapons or nu nuclear activity in general. I'm sure they had thoughts of its effect on the environment because Homer is such a precious place, uh, but uh, I was impressed that they had gone so far as to make it an official policy of the city. Can I ask about the seeds uh, again? Was this tree donated to the city here? Was was it planted from those seeds here? Or Steve, did you bring a pre-planted little plant to, to Homer? Well, I, I, I guess it, it took a little bit of a road. I We've had a number of uh, international conferences where we promote the uh, seed and ask people to take it back and plant it. And one of the conferences, uh, Rotarian, uh, one of their names in Saldana, they came and said, Steve, we think that's a great idea. We'd like to take it home to Saldana where uh, we are trying to uh, build a um, Asian garden, a Japanese garden. And it would be perfect to place in that garden. So I gave them a number of seeds and they were successful in growing a number of plants. Uh, they did a good job, uh, but they had too many. And they said, you know, we, we can't use all these. And so when I saw Kevin's, uh, and I really wanted to, to have something going on in Homer, but it wasn't until I saw Kevin's exhibit, you know, I needed somebody to be the person to, to support this because it's, it's, it takes a, a lot of time to nurture these plants, you know, and then to have a program. And, uh, and so when I saw the exhibit, I was so happy. Finally, maybe we can find a home for this uh, saplings that are growing in Salatna. And so when I told uh, Sudatna uh, Vicharians about it, they said, sure, you can have whatever we have left. We have enough for our Japanese garden. And I delivered it to Kevin and he accepted them enthusiastically. I was worried because it, it takes an effort. 
you know, every day watering or looking after them and the sun or putting them outside and inside. So it's a labor of love. So I, you know, I congratulate Kevin and I'm so grateful that he was able to take them in and now they're to seem to be healthy. So uh, it, it, it could serve as the basis for our pro programs as we go forward. Will it ever be able to be planted outside in our climate here in Homer? I sure hope so. You know, uh, ginkgo trees are one of the most common, that's the most common ornamental tree in New York City. Oh. Which is a little bit colder than here sometimes in the winter um, when they're big enough. So uh, I have great hopes of being Man. able to do yeah. It has to get uh, quite a bit bigger though. Yeah, yeah, it'll have to be a lot bigger. Um, you know, uh, save you more cherry tree size. I think that would probably be, you know, when it gets to that size, I think we'll be ready. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's another feature of the stinko tree is that it has a very wide range of, of growth. So uh, in Russia and Siberia, you know, they're growing them indoors, but in the same way, uh, when they're big enough, they'll survive out, out, outdoors. So they're a very hardy plant. That can that can be spread globally, so that's it's perfect for our project. Uh, you talked about the uh, sister cities in um, Japan and Russia. Maybe you could talk about the trips uh, that you remember on on this. And who went with you from from Homer? Are there any uh, public figures you you can name that went on these trips and you know helped establish the sister city process? Sure, sister city is an official program sanctioned by uh, Congress uh, between, it uh, started under Eisenhower, uh, who wanted to have peace through these connections with cities in the United States and other countries. Uh, the, the most uh, pairings are between the United States and Japan. Uh, uh, and so um, it, it, it requires a resolution of the city. So it's an official diplomatic um, uh, organization, uh, the mayors of the cities, with the approval of the city city councils, uh, approves that they or, or applies for sister city status with the association of sister cities. And once that happens, it doesn't mean uh, constant going back and forth. It opens the door for citizens to have programs uh, funded in the early days by the city. And in, in the early days, Japan was flush with money and they had many grants uh, for, for people to travel. So they, every year they'd send a delegation, our sister city in um, Teshio in uh, Hokkaido, Northern Japan. And we would host maybe a dozen or 20 high school students. And that went on for, oh, maybe 10 years. And we had our students spend a year uh, studying in Japan. Maybe, maybe we had maybe six or seven. And they were headed, the delegation, and then we had official delegations going uh, to the sister city and they're coming here. So all of the mayors, starting with, uh, I think, um, John Calhoun went, uh, Jim Hornaby uh, went. Uh, the time frame for this, I remember too, this is yeah. about the 90s, correct? Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so this is when I was in high school also. I, re I remember when there were people headed over there. Yes, there you go. And, and so it was, 
unfortunately, that funding from the Japan side uh, died. You know, they had economic problems. The government couldn't fund it anymore. Uh, and we didn't get much funding, uh, maybe a couple of trips. Uh, uh, some of the officials, uh, were, uh, their expenses were paid. But you know, after a while, it was purely voluntary. Even the mayor uh, had to pay his own way, and they, and they did. Because it was just a great trip. You, know, they, you get there, and they take care of everything. They pick you up at the airport. You know, they host you, they wine and dine you. It's just a fantastic experience um, for the little cost of uh, the airfare to get there. So this went on for many years and we had many groups going back and forth. And we thought it was very enriching uh, for the young people in our high schools. And so I'm sad that I mean, we couldn't do that because it wouldn't take that much really except a declaration of our city and then uh, our local committee, our local citizens committee organizing a trip. So I, I hope that maybe thanks to your program, maybe we can start thinking about that and, and it may give uh, some, uh, some idea of fun in the future, even though maybe we can't do it now, we can look forward to it. And the kids can maybe start studying a little bit about the country that we're going to. And, and that would be a great goal for our project. Just because I'm remembering this from, from high school and I haven't thought about it for a long time. I just bugged my sister and she's, she's like, oh yeah, we, we, my family housed the, some of the dance students who came. Jacqueline said, oh yeah, we housed the dance girls. I totally forgot that. It looks like 1993. Well, you know, maybe we can bring some of that back and say, uh, if you guys remember or hosted or have some memories of uh, the experience, you know, can, can you share that at a, at a session that you have at the library? That would be a great event, I would think. Yeah. Uh, the kids who are growing up, you know, could tell about their experiences and the parents could tell about the kids that they hosted and all the funny stories because back then, this uh, city in Hokkaido was really rural Japan. They hadn't been exposed to anything international. They didn't know how to sleep in a bed. Uh, we had one couple slept without pulling the covers. And when we asked, because in Japan, you know, they sleep on the mat and they just have a, a mattress on top. So they don't have a, a regular bed. And we asked them the next morning, didn't you sleep in your bed? And they said, yeah, we did. But they didn't think to pull back the covers because they didn't know how. So things like that, funny stories. Yeah. I got to tell you one funny story. You know. Uh, uh, the Japanese had an image of Americans as being big people. And, you know, watch Hollywood, and that's what their, that's what their stereotype was. So one of the prominent uh, hosts uh, said, my bed is too small, so I'm going to, I have to build a big bed for the mayor who's coming. <laughs> so he built this huge bed. You know, it was you know, eight feet tall or long or something. And of course, the mayor then was John Calhoun. <laughs> he was shorter than the guy that was hosting him. <laughs> so, so funny that they had these stereotypes. And that's one of the reasons for this is to destroy those stereotypes. Those are innocent ones, but there's some bad stereotypes too that need to be destroyed. And the other story I, I like to tell is 
We also thought that, you know, we had fabulous Japanese food. Uh, we never had Japanese food like that. But they thought, well, you know, Americans, they might not like our raw fish and all this Japanese food. So we should at least prepare one meal for them, you know, uh, food that they're accustomed to. So they said, well, let's do hamburgers. And they thought, well, they surely would love hamburgers, but they didn't have hamburger meat. So they thought, well, what can we substitute for hamburger? They made us fish hamburgers. <laughs> it was the worst hamburger you've ever had. You know, just it was just terrible. But, yeah, but we dutifully we we gulped it down, hoping that they would start serving us the Japanese food again. Well, there are so many stories like that. I think it would be so fun to have a, a get together like that, Kevin. I think if you put out the word, they would, they would yep. come. Kevin, can I ask you about the uh, display that you put up? Maybe some of the books that are in it and some of the uh, uh, other elements of it? The real seed for the whole thing is Sadako and the Thousand Paper Cranes. Uh, and that's a book that we have uh, in the children's library. Um, and then the other one that... Uh, well, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty big list and I'd be so happy to share it. There's a, there's a, you know, the classic text of that era is by John Hershey, Hiroshima by John Hershey. And it's sort of just uh, a journalism piece. It's just sort of firsthand accounts of, uh, of what it was like to be there. Um, that was sort of the, the adult one. And there was also um, one of the first manga uh, that came out that was out of there is called uh, Bear, uh, uh, I think it's called Barefoot Gen, and we had, uh, and that's again, it's a, it's actually a, a manga memoir of, uh, you know, of a survivor. Um, to me, those were some, you know, sort of the three, the three, the three anchors. Um, but beyond that, you know, it was just a chance to go through the whole library and and really just pull out anything that I thought was uh, everything that I thought was. Uh, you do, do you still have the list though? Yeah, absolutely. I will. I know. Uh, I, I looked at it just from pictures and grabbed a few just to like, there was a, a one Sadako book that was more like a children, a, even younger kids book, just yeah. mostly images. I, I've got that one sitting here and another history book just to kind of update myself on stuff before I started to get into this. Yeah. Well, then we got into the origami books and, oh. and, and then just, you know, getting, getting origami paper out. And, you know, my, my memories of that were, it was so wonderful. When you visit the library, I think one of the most popular things is actually our puzzle table. People just love to come and work on this community puzzle together. Um, but when we had the origami paper out, you know, we just brought out all the origami books. People of all kinds would make paper cranes or anything that they wanted to make. And it was just a really we were just getting people to engage on in really beautiful ways with that, with that project. And, and to this day, you know, people will kind of in the way that you can find painted rocks around Homer, you can still find little paper cranes that people are folding around the library, especially the people that, you know, wouldn't even think of themselves as, be, as being creative people. To me, some of the, those were some of the most favorite interactions I had where people would just be like, I never thought I could do this, but here I am, you know, this is just my thing now. <laughs> and I'm so thankful to all of those people for trying something new, learning something new. You think there's been a lasting effect? Well, I guess you do with uh, the cranes you find around, but a lasting effect of the display, uh, you know, maybe on a larger scale of, uh, uh, you know, understanding and education and what have you? 
You know, I hope so. Um, it's been long enough and we've, we've been having to do our programs remote long enough that, well, I just feel like it's time to bring it back. Just like a lot of the plants uh, went dormant over COVID, just like a lot of us. And uh, it's time to, it's time to, it's time to get them back up again. Kevin, it's, it's just an idea, uh, but you know, if we do things interactively, uh, maybe we don't have to wait years before COVID dies down. And I'm thinking maybe we can do things like a, a Japanese cooking class or go into the high school, you know, in our sister city and show their judo uh, lessons or uh, karate or things like that. Um, um, I'm, Noko, my wife, is from Japan and she's done a lot of the cooking classes in Homer and it's always been a, a big, it draws a, a big audience. But, you know, I think maybe... Uh, we could do something like that. And if you need us, you know, we could get people uh, on the Japan side uh, to participate in, on interesting topics. You know, if you like manga, maybe they could talk on, on manga. Things that you think would interest the community, we could help find uh, people in Japan to, uh, to help us. Oh, yes, please. I mean, I, I think manga, you know, just thinking about cultural exchanges, manga is that probably one of our, our biggest, our biggest circulating uh, sections is our graphic novels and manga. And it, I mean, you know, maybe that is one of the changes that I can see very strongly is that, you know, we have a bigger emphasis on bringing in manga from Japan. And I just love it when, you know, the teens are super into reading manga. And now we have even manga for younger kids. One of my favorite manga of all times is Chai's Sweet Home, which is just about a little tiny cat. And I just love showing little kids because they'll have the English and the Japanese romanji there. And it's so like, oh, well, you know, in America, our cats say meow, meow, but this cat says meow meow. <laughs> and I just love showing kids, you know, that, you know, uh, an animal like that, that we all understand can speak in, in a couple different languages too. But yeah, you know, we have, we have a very dedicated group of kids that comes and they just, they just want to absorb all the manga and all the anime that they can. And I think that's wonderful. Uh, uh, you know, when, I think when me and Emily were kids, it was really hard to get that kind of stuff. Uh, it was super obscure, super niche stuff. And, you know, we have a lot of kids that uh, that are very interested in Japan <laughs> and, and Homer. And uh, we need to give them a bigger platform and a, and a bigger way to do that. But I think uh, it's happening. I think Claudia, our, our previous child services librarian, even had a, a manga club or an anime club at one point. And I tried to teach them uh, Japanese instant survival food, which is which we have. We have Baby Moore and Safeway just do a, an amazing job of having Asian food here in Homer. I probably wouldn't be able to live here without Baby Moore. But I was basically trying to teach them survival, convenience store, Japanese food, which was, you know, I'd bring in my rice pot and you can get these curry bags right out of Safeway. It's the real deal. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we just made everybody Japanese style, uh, you know, hot pot curry, which is, you know, boil these in a coffee pot, <laughs> basically in the bags and, you know, talk about meals ready to eat, but these are cultural meals ready to eat. <laughs> you can get that right out of Safeway. As we start to bring our programs back to life, I think it's good for us to, to have some of these directions for our community. Steve, you mentioned you uh, were born in Los Angeles. Was that an internment camp in Los Angeles? Yes. Okay. Were there many there or is that the one big one? Or, I mean, uh, are you able to... Uh, uh, can we identify a more 
closely than just an internment camp in Los Angeles? Oh, it was a um, relocation, what do they call it? A relocation camp. That's where they gathered all the people of Japanese ancestries. And it was actually the Santa Anita racetrack. They had barracks oh. there. Um, we were housed in the horse stall. Um, and then from there, they assigned people to go to, because they were still building uh, these camps uh, in the south and all over the United States. So they gathered them there. And then on by train, we went to Arkansas. And we spent most of the uh, war in um, uh, Rohr, R-O-H-R, uh, Arkansas. And then they asked, uh, at the end of the war, you know, anyone who will sign a loyal deals uh, will be released. And, um, and my father refused to sign. And I didn't understand uh, until now that he, um, um, he didn't like the way he was treated and he wanted to go back home. You know. But then us kids were born in this country and we didn't want to, we didn't want to go to a foreign country. He didn't speak you know, Japanese or know the customs and especially a bombed out city. So we, we just were opposed and, uh, and thank goodness, you know, I was able to stay in the United States and I've had a very, I had a very happy life. Uh, as a reason, born from this tragedy, but my father really lost all of his dreams. And so, you know, I, when I think about um, the suffering, it really fell on him because he had all of these ideas that he had that was just completely dashed and it wasn't um, his decision anymore. It was a family decision and you're gonna stay in the United States. And how long did you have to stay in Arkansas? How long was the duration of the war? You know, it's 42 is I was born uh, at the beginning and then uh, 45, I think it ended. So three, maybe four years and maybe another six months in Tudor Lake where all of the people who refused to sign a loyalty also wound up. And so maybe it was a total of four and a half, five years. And then we went back to Los Angeles? Yes, yeah, and we had to start sort of all over again. I don't know where they, they didn't have anything. They might have been able to stash some money so that they could afford to start up again. But you know, it's not, not only uh, 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 Japanese Americans, the native people in Alaska also were put in camps. They, you know, they, they said it was for their protection, but they were treated the same way. They were barbed wires with, you know, uh, uh, soldiers uh, with guns keeping them from escaping. So it, it was um, not a good time, you know. Do you, did your dad ever, I'm just, uh, you know, didn't think that, but did your dad ever get to come up here to Alaska and see everything that you were able to do and accomplish up here? Is that my question for me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did your, did your dad ever, did your dad ever come up with No, my dad passed away when he was uh, 50, I think 54. Oh. So I, I, um, I have an older brother who was 14 years senior to me and he was my dad, he raised me. So, and I, I can't help but believe, you know, his mental and physical condition of my father was not good after getting out of camp. And I can see it in the pictures, you know, I've written a book and 
I can see in the pictures that I collected that he was a very sick man after after the after the war. And so um, out of the ashes, I guess. And I've been so lucky to have such a good life. You know, I just feel I just feel I need to give give back somehow. You know, I need to try to keep this from happening. That's my that's my payback and pay forward because my my father and mother went through a lot and I didn't. I really was very lucky. And so I I owe them or I owe the future maybe to try to do something that this doesn't happen to anyone in the future. It's kind of a way that I can justify my good luck. <laughs> but you know, I, I hope uh uh, not to so thankful for what you've been able to do for this community, whether it was starting up the Center for Alaska Coastal Studies or the Homer Foundation or the Rotary Club or the Haywa Peace Tree Project, or <laughs> I'm sure the list, I know the list goes on much longer than I can, than I'm even aware of, but I'm just so thankful for our real Asian American superheroes that, uh, that you've paved the way. <laughs> Well, there's no way I can, you know, pay the payback the way I was treated. And as a footnote, uh, uh, I travel a lot, and there's a lot of racism in a lot of places. But I found none of that in Alaska. It was such a relief to be around people who wanted to know how big a fish you caught yesterday, and not talk about you speak good English. You know, where did you learn such good English? You get that in other places. You know. So they never looked at, at me as a, uh, a minority. They just looked at me as a person. And, uh, and I'm so grateful that I was able to live and my kids were able to live in that atmosphere and not scarred by people thinking uh, you know, bad thoughts about your ancestry. So I'm grateful, I really am uh, for Alaska. So. Do you still go to Rotary meetings? I started a peace club. It's a called an e club. It's an internet club, and we have members from oh, eight different countries that we meet and we can through the internet. And, and one of our members uh, was the CEO of uh, the organization that won the Nobel Peace Prize for their stand on nuclear uh, weapon education. And so that's the direction of our club. Yeah. So I'm very comfortable and happy as a member of this club. Is there anything either of you folks would like to add in, in closing about the, the tree, uh, you know, maybe the potential for a new display or just anything? I just want to invite everybody in the community to come to the library and check out this tree. <laughs> We're going to be nurturing this thing for a long time and it could use everybody's help to come say hi. It's a natural place for us to all come together and more than ever, that's what we need to be doing right now. So we'll do it safely, of course. <laughs> I really look forward to the time when we can come together and, and all drink tea together. Maybe, maybe one uh, thing uh, about the tree. Uh, I, I've uh, been in Russia and distributed the, the trees in, in one place, uh, one, supposedly the coldest city in the world, Yakutsk. They had a ceremony for receiving the tree at a uh, cancer survivor uh, clinic 
And what they were using the tree for was to give hope for survivors of cancer. So it, it doesn't have to necessarily be uh, nuclear. It could be a symbol for anyone who has been through a tragedy that needs hope that they can survive and, and prosper in the, in, the, in the future. So that tree can stand for any number of, um, of efforts like that. So not just to confine the idea of, uh, of the bomb, but to use it however people want to use it. It's a great tool. Well, Steve and Kevin, I don't have any more questions. I want to thank you both for joining us and letting me uh, sit in with Emily and talking with you guys. I really learned a lot about this and it's uh, just amazing. And Kevin, I hope, I hope we get the display up again. I, I'll do a story on it the day it opens. Thank you for joining us on this week's Coffee Table. Essayist Emily Springer and I were speaking with Steve Yoshida and Kevin Coe about the Peace Tree, Sister Cities, and Nuclear-Free Zones. If you missed any part of the program or would like to hear it again, it's posted online at kbbi.org. Next week, Josh Crone will host a program on earthquakes and tsunamis in Alaska and, specifically, Cashmack Bay. Tune in live with your questions next Wednesday at 9 here on KBBI AM 890, Homer. Hi, this is Josh Crone, General Manager here at KBBI, and today I'm asking you to do something you may have never done before. Take a step forward and become a sustaining member of KBBI. For more than 40 years, KBBI has been a game changer, combining journalism, cultural expression, and storytelling for the public good. Become that sustaining force for KBBI right now. Here's how. Go to kbbi.org, click the red donate button at the top right corner, sign up to make an automatic recurring monthly donation, and you're done. Thanks for your support.